Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening your eyes to a new view of life. Thanks for joining us today. Over 30 episodes ago, we started this podcast with one simple desire, to help all of us open our eyes and see ourselves and life differently. Because we can't be what we can't see. So, our goal is to bring a new perspective into your life and thinking each week. So, as you listen today, look for ways to put a new perspective on your belief window. Then be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you automatically get the next podcast as it's released each week. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about leaving behind the least we can do. You know, when it comes to finding wealth, if you want to earn a lot of money with the least amount of work, there are only a few options with really large returns. The first is to win the lottery, and the second, perhaps to rob a bank. The Mega Millions Lottery is a multi-jurisdictional lottery offered in 45 states, and the minimum jackpot is $40 million. Now, if the winning combination of numbers is not drawn on Tuesday or Friday, the amount of the lottery increases each drawing until a winner is finally found. Now, the largest jackpot in Mega Millions history was $1.5 billion in 2018, in which there was one winning jackpot ticket sold in South Carolina. And the winner anonymously claimed that prize five months later. Now, to win the lottery, you must match five white balls and one gold-colored mega ball. And there are 70 white balls and 25 gold balls to select from. And while that may seem likely, the odds of winning the Mega Millions lottery are staggering. The odds are roughly one in 300 million. Now, let me conceptualize those odds just a bit more. Let's say I put $100 million inside a house somewhere in North America, somewhere in Canada, the United States, Mexico, Guatemala, etc. And then I gave you a key. And you had to pick the right house. You had one chance to pick the right house. Those are better odds than you're winning the Mega Millions lottery. So, why do so many people play the Mega Millions lottery? Well, you can win smaller prizes like $2 or $3 or $50, and your odds of doing so are significantly better. If you, and you win those prizes by matching only two or three or four numbers. And the odds of winning $50 are 1 in 10,000. So these lower winnings prime your mind with the thought of, well, at least I'll win something. So you're more apt to play. And the Mega Millions tickets only cost $2. And that low price makes the buyer think, oh, it's only 2 bucks, no big deal. And this also encourages buyers to buy multiple tickets. And they think their odds of winning by doing so are significantly larger, which really isn't the case. I also think people enjoy the fantasy of it. They dream of what it would be like to have all of that money, right? And that's a little exciting and brings excitement to their day. But most of all, I think they get in the habit of chasing the least they can do to be wealthy. Who's the biggest winner of the Mega Millions lottery? Well, the IRS and state governments who take almost half of the winnings. Who are the biggest losers? Well, the average American spends $325 a year on lottery tickets, and the top 80% of Americans in terms of income spend on average $193 a year on the lottery, 
with about 41% of that group playing regularly. For the bottom 20% of the country in terms of income, 61% purchased the lottery ticket last year, and on average, they spent $433 in doing so. That $433 represents about 4% of their total annual household earnings. A recent Duke University study showed that the majority of lottery ticket purchases are made by the poorest households in the United States. And as a result, federal and state governments get the benefit by taking money from the poorest households in the country. The Center for Public Policy said that the lottery was originally designed as a way to provide more money for education. But instead, states use the money to fund core education budgets and divert money previously used for education to other areas. For example, North Carolina spends less today on education than it did prior to the lottery. So what does the lottery prove? Well, perhaps that we all have a hunger, a desire to get the most we can from the least amount of work. But let's flip the script, so to speak. Imagine if the same dollars the average person spends on the lottery were put into their personal savings instead. Well, if you were 20 years old and took the $735 spent by the average lottery buyer in Massachusetts and invested it at market rates at age 65, you would have over $530,000 in savings. Everyone could win under that scenario, right? Interestingly, according to the National Endowment for Financial Education, 70% of people who end up winning the lottery declare bankruptcy later. Jack Whitaker told Time Magazine that he wished he had torn up his ticket instead of taking the $315 million in winnings. You see, when his wealth changed, his family changed, and he would eventually lose a daughter and granddaughter to drugs, and he doesn't like who he's become. He says, it isn't worth it. Donna Mickens said that years after winning the lottery, she declared emotional bankruptcy. She said she was happy before the win, but after she won the lottery, she says her inner dialogue became manic. She became more concerned about how she was being judged. Now, if I were to ask you if you'd rather win the lottery or not, of course, you'd rather win the lottery, right? But here's a proven fact. When you have to work to build wealth, you build yourself. You build your life. You build your capabilities. A recent National Academy of Sciences study shows that when you earn income, your well-being increases with that income. Years ago, I started a training seminar with a simple demonstration. I called a young man out of the audience who said he could jump high. And once on stage, I asked him if he would jump over a stick that would be held on each end by two of my associates. And he said, sure. I explained to him that they would hold the stick uh, like a high jump bar, and he would test his jumping ability by jumping over it. Then we would raise the stick to see how high he could go. So my associates held the stick about six inches off the ground and And the young man jumped over the stick with relative ease by simply hopping and clearing the stick by an inch or two. Then we raised the stick to a foot off the ground, and he used the same hop. Then two feet, he jumped with more effort. And then three feet, he started to use all his effort. And we kept going until he couldn't jump any higher. Then I interviewed him. I asked him a simple question. I said, I noticed on the first two or three jumps that even though you could jump three and a half feet in the air, 
you only cleared the six-inch hurdle by one or two inches. Why? He said, I only did what I needed to do to jump over the stick. I did the least I could do to reach the goal. In life, we're often very much the same. We end up doing the least possible, the least we can do. And the least we can do becomes a way of life for many of us. The problem is that we jump, work, live well below our ability and level of performance possible. And this habit or way of living begins to take over our life. Now, if you think about it, robbing banks is often the least you can do to earn money. And if you consider the 10 biggest robberies of all time, the largest was in London when the robbers stole $97 million. But the largest cash heist in U.S. history was $19 million. Alan Pace worked for Dunbar Security as a regional inspector. And while on the job, he secretly photographed Dunbar's armored car depot. Then he recruited five childhood friends and gave them detailed floor plans, camera locations, ski masks, pistols, and radio headsets. And Pace then used his keys to access the facility. You see, he knew that on Friday nights, the vault was left open because of the larger quantities of money being moved. Once entering the facility, they were able to subdue all the employees with duct tape before they could trigger any alarms. And in less than 30 minutes, they had loaded $19 million in cash into a U-Haul truck, and escaped undetected. Afterwards, police suspected Pace did the robbery, but they had no evidence. So the case went unsolved. Pace and his friends waited six months or so before attempting to use or launder any of the cash. But soon thereafter, they would make a mistake. One robber gave a real estate broker a stack of cash bound with the original bank-branded currency strap and the broker immediately went to the police. Well, the police noticed that he had rented a U-Haul on the day of the robbery, and soon all the men were captured and convicted of robbery and sentenced to prison. Now, you may be asking yourself, what if your childhood friend approached you and offered you detailed floor plans, camera locations, ski masks, pistols, and radio headsets, and then asked, do you want to participate in a robbery? What would you do? Well, of course, you would say no. But we all seek ways to get the most possible from the least amount of effort. And the consequences, while not federal prison, can be a sentence of sorts in our life. For example, if you own a business, you can immediately identify those on your team who do the least they can do. The lack of quality in their work comes through. They have less customer retention, lower average revenue, and they're sentenced with a less than stellar reputation. Just imagine an Olympic athlete whose attitude is to do the least they can do in their workouts as they prepare for the Olympics. It would be foolish to assume that they'll medal, right? Likewise, it would be foolish to assume that you could excel with that type of mindset. World-class athletes do the most they can do to reach their goals. Now, would you like to have people on your team be people who are conditioned to do things with excellence, the best they can do? As a parent, do you want children to be in the mindset of doing their best? Of course. So, how do we open our eyes and view doing our best rather than doing the least as the way we live? Well, 
First, we have to understand this is an inside job. Too often, we attempt to change the way we act without changing the way we think, without changing our beliefs. And as a result, we may get results for a short period of time in that change, but not ongoing commitment, not true investment. Let's just say you want the culture in your family to be one in which your children do their best in school, that they're self-driven and striving to learn on their own. Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, what most of us parents do is announce one day to our kids that the schedule has changed. Before they can leave the house in the afternoon or evening, they must study for two hours. Now, yes, this can force some change, and yes, this may get them in the habit of studying each day, but ask any parent who's tried this type of change, it doesn't last long. Without changing the way our children think or what they believe, we won't create children who value and enjoy learning. Now, the same goes for your team in your business and for yourself. My neighbor, Roger Connors, teaches this simple principle. Change the culture, change the game. Now, the word culture is widely misunderstood. In some organizations, leaders think culture can be created by writing a mission statement or declaring that the culture will be different, but that rarely works. Culture, generally stated, is the beliefs and behaviors exhibited in an organization. And they are, in fact, driven by the value systems held and perpetuated by those on the inside. Often stories are told and retold about company culture, and those stories outweigh what is written on the company website. For example, for years I worked at Procter & Gamble. In describing their culture, many of us would talk about the dog-eat-dog -dog culture that prevailed. And here's how that culture was formed. P&G only hires new college graduates for their professional roles. They have a promote-from-within policy. And their philosophy is, we don't hire trained professionals to run marketing. We hire college graduates and train them in the P&G way. So on my first day of work, 40 or 50 of us college graduates were gathered in a room for orientation. And we were told that how we performed would determine our pay increases and opportunities for new roles. And as such, we were also told that 20% of us would not be employed with P&G in two years' time. And the top 10% of us would have the job assignment of our choice because we performed well. In other words, there were only so many job promotions available, and one out of five of us would be fired because of lack of performance. And this created a huge scarcity belief in all of us. It also created a competitive environment in which we were not incented to work together. It created, in my mind, the belief that you better outperform the person sitting next to you if you want a job. And this scarcity mentality wreaked havoc on creativity. People didn't share ideas. Trust was low because you were worried about the person next to you moving ahead of you. And while P&G got a high level of performance for a period out of time from us new employees, soon the scarcity mentality of the organization took its toll and the good people, the really good, talented people, moved on to other companies and more fulfilling roles. That was the culture that prevailed. Now, in contrast, I've worked for organizations with an abundance mentality. In these cultures, people are encouraged and rewarded for the collective organization success. And the belief is that if the company rises, all rise with it. And rather than resenting the success of others... 
employees are generally happy for others when they achieve success because we all succeed together. So here's the thing. If you look at the results you want in life or business or anything you try, it looks like it takes the shape of an iceberg. You see, ice has nine-tenths or 90% of the density of water. And that means on average, 90% of an iceberg is below the water surface. And the same goes for us. The results that we exhibit represent only 10% of the overall effort. The other 90%, the things that drive results, are below the surface. So what's below the surface? Our beliefs and actions. You see, our beliefs come from experiences and how we interpret those experiences. Then those beliefs direct our actions. And this is why your belief window is such a powerful tool for getting the results you want in life. So back to our example of helping our children be people who strive for excellence in their schoolwork. Our job is to provide experiences that lead to beliefs that drive actions, to create the culture. So if you want children who do their best in school and in their learning, ask yourself, what belief do I need to reinforce? What specific experience can I provide to them to reinforce that excellence in school is worth pursuing? Well, here's what I found. If you want to help your kids love learning, let your kids teach you. That means when they need help with their homework, start with what they can teach you. For example, let's say that they're learning ratios in math. The first question when you sit down with them is, show me what you've learned about ratios so far. Genuinely listen. Be willing to learn yourself. They'll probably teach you something. Then work together on tackling the problem. Now, think about the culture that creates. First, they become good teachers and have confidence because they know the topic. But second, they see you genuinely interested in the topic and start to see the topic as interesting themselves. And last, they see your joy in learning and get the same joy themselves. Now, contrast this with the culture created by putting them in a quiet room and telling them to do their homework. That does little to create a desire for excellence, right? In a recent survey, when kids were asked about what they wanted parents to know about how to get them to do homework, the kids said, if you want us to turn our cell phones off or spend less time texting with our friends, then parents should do the same. You see, culture is created by common beliefs and actions. Here's my point. If we want to be people who strive for the best we can do or want our teams or children to abandon the least they can do mindset, then we have to think about the culture that we're creating. Two years ago, for the first time in history, at the end of the final round of the annual Scripps National Spelling Bee, a record eight students remained standing. All eight were crowned co-champions. Why? Because round after round, they all answered correctly. They spelled words like Samorsirier or Lagudorusay correctly. And how did this happen? How did the eight kids become smarter than the spelling bee producers and spell every word right that came their way? Well, some experts said the words were too easy and the spellers too good. And in a way, they were right. 
You see, usually kids will misspell a word in a round, and that misspelling ends the round, leaving plenty of words left on the producer's list. But this time, the kids exhausted the list. And why have the spellers of late become so good? Well, in 2018, a computer software called Spell Pundit was launched. And this software drills kids on past editions of Spelling Bee words. And there have been a growth in the number of coaches who coach for Spelling Bees. And these coaches teach the origin of words. You, you see, to be a good speller, you have to have a bank of memorized words in your head. But a great speller not only knows a lot of words, but can basically spell words they haven't practiced before. And how do they do that? Well, because they've been taught the logic and structure of languages. For example, let's take science words like tetagoniodide, which is a species of an insect. Go ahead and take a shot at spelling tetagoniodide, will you? It's spelled T-E-T-T-I-G-O-N-I-I-D. You likely didn't get the I-I-D at the end, but if you know it is derived from the Greek for cicada, you would know the patterns for the prefix and endings of words. So yes, a computer software helped the kids improve, and yes, they had coaches, but here's what you don't know. Half of the eight kids crowned as co-champions in 2019 all came from Plano, Texas. These kids learned from the same coach, studying together several hours a day, and this created a culture of excellence. The coach says he tries to bring the entrepreneurial spirit into the kids' thinking. They participate in designing the strategies for how to win the spelling bee. They analyze weaknesses, and they share tips with each other on how to better prepare. And they become coaches for each other in the process. And this abundant approach creates a culture that goes beyond memorization and becomes a center for excellence for them in spelling. In other words, their excellence was an inside job. Their culture was to do the best they could possibly do, and that culture became fun. So what about you? How can you become a person who seeks to do the best you can? Well, it starts with the culture that you are creating in your life. That culture starts with your beliefs, and your beliefs will drive your actions. So do you believe that excellence in most areas of your life will make a difference? If so, then what one thing could you do this week to shift from the least you could do to the best you could do? Let's take something simple like exercise. For most of us, when we exercise, we don't always give our full effort. We intend to run a certain speed or a certain distance, and when we get tired, we fall a little short, right? But what if when you exercise, you gave it your full effort? In the 45 minutes you set aside to exercise, lift a bit more. Reach your set goal. Try even when you don't feel like trying. Perhaps you might even try working out with other like-minded people. What would be the result? Well, of course, you'd be in better shape and you'll make more progress physically. But I believe that success in one area of your life spills over into other areas of your life. And you may just find that the experience of giving your very best in one area creates the belief that you should do so in other areas as well. A few years ago, I was leading an organization that had struggled for years to break out of their stagnant growth cycle. They didn't attract the best talent and their reputation in the market was good, 
but not great. And it was obvious that we couldn't keep doing the same thing and expect to deliver different results. We had to do something different. But the organization didn't know what that was. And some of them kept saying, we need a new strategy. So I introduced a simple concept, which was this. Excellence is a strategy. We didn't need other strategies if we just pursued excellence. If we became excellent in our service, we would retain more customers. If we became excellent in our communication, more people would want to engage with us. If we became excellent in the product we delivered, we would be more in demand. If we became excellent in our recruiting, we would attract the talent we needed to find to grow in new ways. And soon this started to catch on and teams started to identify ways they could become excellent themselves. You see, excellence is an inside job. When we started to pursue excellence, the culture started to change. And we slowly started to raise our game in a number of ways. And it was really fun. And the result, the business is growing today like it never has before. Now, the same goes for you. In your life, excellence is a strategy. So I ask again, in what area of your life could you raise your standard and attempt to do your best to be excellent? What if you just tried to be excellent in attitude? That doesn't mean perfect. It just means to give your best. And what if you decided that the culture you wanted to create in your home was that of abundance and positivity? Your positivity, your excellence in that area could change the culture at home. In whatever way you decide to do the best you can, here's what I know. When you begin, even in small ways, to invite excellence into your life, you will feel a spirit of self-worth and peace enter into your life. And that spirit will invite you to rise, to do things with the best part of you instead of the least part of you. And the truth is, we, you, were made to be beings of excellence. It's in our nature. As children of God, who is an excellent being, we've inherited the natural tendency to give our best, to be our best, and become the best version of ourselves. Vince Lombardi said, the quality of a person's life is in direct proportion to their commitment to excellence. Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence is not an act, but a habit. My favorite story of rising to excellence in life comes from the Lion King. Now, you may remember the story of the Lion King, that because of fear and confusion and lies from others, Simba had run away from home and was living a life in which he did the least he could do. He had been living the Hakuna Matata lifestyle, right? In Swahili, Hakuna Matata means to take it easy the least you can do. But the stars in the sky, a feeling inside, and his sense of self drew Simba home. And at one point in the movie, his father, in spirit form, appears to him and tells him, you've forgotten who you are, and so you've forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you have become. When you stop doing the least you can do, and do your best, it brings you back to who you can and should be. It restores you, your hope, your future. Excellence is a strategy for being happy. Now, ironically, the making of the film Lion King 
is a lesson in excellence. The concept was conceived on a plane ride in a conversation with Jeff Katzenberg, Roy Disney, and Peter Schneider. Initially, it was named the King of Kalahari, and Linda Wolverton spent a year writing drafts of the script, and the name was then changed to King of the Jungle. Now, the plot of the first version of the script was a battle between lions and baboons. Most studios would have taken the script and started production right away because it was good enough, right? But it wasn't good enough for Disney. It wasn't yet excellent. Soon, Roger Allers, who had done Beauty and the Beast, came aboard the project and took over the script. And he had a higher quality approach. To inform their writing, the team traveled to Kenya to study the environment of the film. Then, two more scriptwriters were invited to come aboard and the movie The Lion King was born. In total, over three years of writing and rewriting the script from a team of Disney's very best, there were over 100 rewrites after the first script was completed. The casting director was told to bring only the best on board. Pure excellence in the cast, and he did. James Earl Jones, Nathan Lane, Cheech Martin, Whoopi Goldberg, Matthew Broderick, and Jeremy Irons were just a few of those who were brought on board as voices. Tim Rice and Elton John were hired to write the music, and on and on went their pursuit of excellence in making the film. In total, the film itself, the Broadway musical, and other versions of The Lion King have generated over $11.5 billion in sales for Disney. Excellence is an inside job. So, as we end today, remember, everyone would win if we spent what we spend on the lottery and lifetime savings, if we pursued the best we could do instead of the least we could do. Every time you jump, so to speak, in life, jump as high as you can. And when you choose the best path, the path of excellence, you become a different person along the way. Remember, the pursuit of excellence is an inside job. On your team or family, it requires culture, actions and beliefs that make excellence a reality. And in your life, simply get started. Find one way each day to be excellent. And here's what you'll find. You'll find the real you. And like Simba, you'll find out who you really are when you stop doing the least you can do and open your eyes to excellence. Well, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become. <laughs>